This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Adacvio. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. You know, Dr. C, when we talk about names and the upper echelon of sickle cell disease, you know, really people who moved the bar forward, there's not that many names. There's there's quite a few, but... There's a few legends, and we've had some on here. There's some that really stand out. So it's a, it's a for sure, a special one today. Yeah, so our guest today is um, somebody who's been serving the sickle cell community for a long time. Somebody who has served the sickle cell community in, in, in a place where sickle cell exists, but but doesn't get as much sort of attention or notoriety as, you know, the United States, the UK, France. So today's guest is none other than Graham Roger Sargent. Dr. Dr. C, why don't you break down for us who Dr. Graham Sargent is and what he means to the Sickle Cell Society? We have to leave some time for the interview. Suffice it to say, Dr. Sargent's a legend. I mean, I've been citing his work my whole career. He was doing this work in Jamaica. It's not, uh, you know, not known for huge clinical research studies, but he he did great work down there. And uh, important things, you know, uh, splenic sequestration research, research on using incentive spirometers to prevent acute chest syndrome. I mean, things that really impact things that we do in the clinic natural history studies, you know, cohort studies, and really providing outstanding care to patients um, in an area where, you know, you might not always have that. So, I mean, truly a legend in the field. I, you know, we have a great guest interviewer today, Patrick James Lynch. Yeah, I have no doubts that Patrick hit this one out of the park, but it's uh, kind of hard not to with a guest like that. So let's let's see what this interview is all about, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Dr. Graham Sargent, it's an honor to be speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us here on Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Good. Thank you. So as I understand from my research, you were born in Bristol, England, and trained in medicine at Clare College in Cambridge. And then in 1966, had your first post in Jamaica as a senior registrar in medicine at the hospital, the university hospital, Mona. But before that experience in Jamaica where you've dedicated now a great portion of your career in life. I read that in 1960, you were in Uganda for clinical training and something happened that forever informed your trajectory. What did you discover in Uganda and how did that impact your professional career from that point forward? A long story, but in those days I had a girlfriend uh, who had a Ugandan background and uh, so that featured uh, heavily in our conversations Uh, So when I had an opportunity in the long vacation between Cambridge and the London Hospital where I did my clinical training, I decided to go to Uganda um, and I had no money, so I did it the cheap way. I traveled by train across Europe, deck of a boat to Egypt and then up the Nile. uh, And uh, I ended up in, in fact, I went, that was my first trip in 1960. In 1962, I went back for a four-month pediatric elective in the Department of Pediatrics with Professor uh, Dick Jelliff. And I think that was the 
experience perhaps that directed me towards medicine in a developing society. Not at those days, sickle cell disease. In fact, having spent four months with Professor Jelliff, I saw a lot of malaria, neonatal tetanus, all sorts of infections and problems. To my knowledge, I didn't see a single case of sickle cell disease, which was very interesting because clearly uh, there were many, many cases in Uganda. But the level of awareness uh, was, was uh, much lower than it is these days. Uh, so much so that when I went back to Uganda uh, as an advisor to DFID, the Department for International Development of the British government, I visited, um, I think, nine times, twice a year, between 2000 and 2005, to try and develop services uh, with the Sickle Cell Association of Uganda. So I think what that first visit did was it made me aware of what could be achieved in a developing society and the role that an individual could play and perhaps make a larger contribution uh, there uh, than in the highly developed societies of the UK and the US. That makes sense. So then what led to your ultimately choosing to settle and invest so much of your life in Jamaica? Largely my wife, Beryl, who is a hematology technologist and has been uh, absolutely vital in the whole development of the sickle cell services in Jamaica over the last 54 years. She, as a child, had been in Bermuda, where her father looked after the dockyard. And uh, I think the background to this uh, was that she enjoyed uh, life in a warm climate. And although I had no intention, no thoughts of going to the Caribbean, in fact, uh, what happened was I looked for jobs when I'd got my basic training in the UK. That is, I got my basic degree, three years of postgraduate experience. I was actually looking to return to tropical Africa. Uh, and there were no opportunities available at that time, but there was a job advertised in Jamaica. I had no intention of going to the Caribbean, but she said, well, it's for a year. Let's go and see how it works out. And in fact, during that year, I was asked to help. Uh, almost immediately after arriving in Jamaica, the University Hospital of the West Indies, I was asked to help in the sickle cell unit, which had recently, uh, the sickle cell clinic rather, which had recently started. And the result was uh, that that year is not yet finished. Uh, we've been there uh, <laughs> 50, nearly 55 years now. And that's because I realized the challenges of sickle cell disease. You know, what happened was, if you read the textbooks of the 1960s, you will find that it says, this is a dreadful disease, everybody dies in childhood, a few people survive uh, to adolescence and early adult life. But in the Jamaican sickle cell clinic, people at the age of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years came in and they appeared to have SS disease. That's the, the severe form, homozygous sickle cell disease, sickle cell gene from both parents. And so when we first tried to write this up in 1968, it was a paper entitled Relatively Benign Sickle Cell Anemia in the West Indies, 60 patients over the age of 30. And we had great difficulty getting that paper published because the reviewers all said, 
I don't know what they're talking about. We know people don't survive that long. Uh, so maybe they're talking about the sickle cell trait, which, of course, we weren't. We were talking about the disease. And the end result of a long story was that paper was published in the British Medical Journal in 1968. The moral of that story was really we evolved the hypothesis that what's happened is everybody thinks it's a dreadful disease because the people who write books and, and uh, uh, papers on sickle, uh, on tropical medicine and sickle cell disease are based in clinics and hospitals, mostly in the US, and see only sick cases. What appears to have escaped their attention was that SS disease is extremely variable and can be so mild that people at the ages of 60 and 70 years may be diagnosed for the first time. Uh, and I think there had been this huge symptomatic bias in the experience of, of many physicians uh, in, uh, in the, those times, which was, uh, in, as I say, in the, in the mid-1960s. And so we tested this hypothesis by, uh, by selecting, let's look for 50 patients who by now would be over the age of 30 with SS disease and who hadn't been seen at the university hospital for 10 years. The natural assumption was that they'd all died, of course, you know, you don't get better sure. from the genetic disease. So we actually visited them in their homes. It was quite difficult finding them sometimes, but we did find uh, 23 out of the 50. So we found 46% of them. And when we said, you know, why did you miss your appointment? They said, Doc, I was going to come tomorrow. Or they said, Doc, as I've got older, I've actually got better. And many of the problems that I used to have when I was younger are no longer there. And I'm enjoying a better quality of life now than I ever had before. And the end result of this long story, so we set up, we tried to decentralize the clinics in Jamaica. We set up a, set, uh, a scheme of six peripheral sickle cell clinics attached to country hospitals. And we did our best to actually reduce this symptomatic bias. And I think that worked well until a doorstep in a village called Retrieve in Westmoreland. And there we were visiting Violet, a young lady we were looking after. She was 13 years old. She had a, not SS, but she had what's called sickle cell beta zero thalassemia, a severe form of sickle cell disease. And she was running the expected course. She was in hospital, in and out, and she was very undeveloped and she was quite short and, and her body was a, of a person who was much younger. And alongside her was her sister, Mertlin. And sister, the sister was two years younger. She was already the same height. She had a different body build. She was beaming with smiles. So we asked the family if we could take a photograph of them side by side to show the effect of severe sickle cell disease on growth, development, enjoyment of life, etc. Just not to be called out, we did a blood test on Mertlin and found she had exactly the same condition. Oh, wow. They both had the same disease. We were following the sick one. We were unaware of the mild one. And that was the basis, really, of the Jamaican cohort study of sickle cell disease. This started on the 25th of June, 1973, at a time when the rest of the world said you cannot diagnose the disease at birth. One of the problems is when babies are born, they have very high levels of what's called fetal hemoglobin. And it's only as that falls, usually in the first year of life, that adult hemoglobin becomes apparent and sickle cell hemoglobin is a variant of adult hemoglobin. So people said you couldn't do it. 
but believe it or not, Jamaica did, and that was largely due to my wife, Beryl, who actually modified some of the existing technology using uh, a method called agar gel electrophoresis. Very simple, very cheap, very straightforward. And so we then proceeded to screen 100,000 consecutive babies at Victoria Jubilee Hospital, the main maternity unit in uh, uh, serving uh, Kingston, the capital. And out of 100,000, we picked up 311 babies with SS disease. We picked up 201 with sickle cell hemoglobin C disease. We followed normal controls and many other variants that we picked up at the time. So we started with a group that was about 800 babies, and we decided to follow them for life. The oldest wow. baby is now 47 years, will be 48 years in, well, actually, in the beginning of August, so she is already 48 years. And one of the enormous strengths of Jamaica, being an island, is the ability to follow up people. But not just that, just the intelligence and the cooperation uh, and the, the, the knowledge of, of our families. There must be few places in the world where this could be done, but 47, 48 years later, we are still in touch with 100% of those kids. That is absolutely... We know wow. who's died, we know who's emigrated, uh, we know who's alive and living in Jamaica, we know where they are, we're in touch with them regularly. And I think that's a tribute, as I say, to not only the sense and knowledge of Jamaican patients and their families, but also the suitability of Jamaica to learn about the disease. And I think the end result of a very long story, and it shows, it, this illustrates how attitudes can change so, so quickly. Our first paper, as I've already mentioned, was in the British Medical Journal in 1968. And that referred to 60 patients over the age of 30. When, 41 years later, I tried to publish a paper of 102 patients over the age of 60, we had difficulty getting that published. Because this time they said, everybody knows people survive. So in those 40 years, there had been a total change in the, the knowledge of the... The disease hadn't changed. Well, the disease had changed to some extent, but basically the most important factor was the changed perception of the medical community, that they weren't now confining their observations to the severely affected cases. Wow, that's an incredible story. We've talked now a good bit about Jamaica for good reason, but you've also done work elsewhere in the world. And I want to read back a quote from you that I had read in an article and ask you a question about it. Since the sickle cell disease gene appears to have developed on at least three different occasions in Africa, and at least once in eastern Saudi Arabia or central India, the disease occurs against a variety of different genetic and environmental backgrounds. And I'm curious to know, what's the significance of sickle cell disease occurring against a variety of different genetic and environmental backgrounds? What does that actually mean? Well, what it means is that uh, the three types that you're talking about, the three African forms of the disease, they're called beta haplotypes, uh, Benin, which is the most common, and 70% uh, of our patients in Jamaica have the Benin haplotype. And similarly for the... Uh, uh, the the, um, Afri uh, the American African population is the same. Uh, Senegal and Bantu. Uh, Senegal is relatively uncommon. Bantu is is common in Central Africa, 
uh, and we don't see much of that in our disease here. Now, once you go to the eastern province of Saudi Arabia or central India, you're looking at the Asian haplotype. And you say, well, what's the significance? So what? Well, <laughs> so what? You look at the disease there, and physically, they're absolutely fine. Uh, physically, they have a normal body build. Uh, they're getting pains, uh, which is interesting. The, the so-called painful crisis of sickle cell disease. Uh, in Jamaica, somewhere between 30 and 50% of our patients have chronic leg ulcers. And you say, wow, that doesn't sound very serious, but it is because it starts in childhood, in later childhood, and it means that they often leave school, they have difficulty getting employment, the only jobs that they can do because they've lost their education are menial jobs involving physical exercise or standing, and those make leg ulcers worse. Right. So leg ulcers actually... Although pathologically you can say, well, you know, it's not going to kill anybody, but it has a huge effect on their social standing and, and manifestations in many other social ways. What happens in eastern province of Saudi Arabia and central India? Well, the first study we did in India with Professor Bimal Kar at uh, Birla Medical College in Odisha, we saw 131 Patients with the disease, we saw one chronic leg ulcer. In all the patients I've seen in Saudi Arabia over the years, we have never, ever seen a chronic leg ulcer. So now you're showing, now you're beginning to see marked differences between what we believe is the Asian haplotype of the disease and the Benin, which is what we work with principally uh, in Jamaica. Let's look at another complication. Painful erections unassociated with sex, called priapism, stuttering priapism. Common at night, uh, wakes people up, lasts two to three hours, resolves usually, and they have normal intervening sexual function. Major attacks where the whole vascular system is shot and they have impotence. So priapism is an important thing. How often is priapism? Well, you're not going to know unless you ask the patient. And every patient we see, we say, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Do you have painful erections in the middle of the night not associated with sex? 33% of our post-pubertal males have priapism. And they would never talk about it if you didn't ask. They don't talk about it because A, it's embarrassing, and B, they don't realize it's connected to sickle cell disease. Yes, yeah, sure. And in sure. fact, in the cohort study where we followed these kids from birth, it was 30% by the age of 20, and by the age of 60, 40% had had attacks of priapism. Wow. What happens in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia or central India? Zero. You don't see any priapism at all. And that's not because we didn't ask for it. We asked every person, do you get painful erections in the middle of the night? None. So you begin to see that there are major differences between the disease in India and the disease in people of African origin. Let's talk about another issue. And that is that the spleen, which is absolutely central uh, to early Im immune response to infection sits under the ribs on the left side of the belly and the spleen gets shot because of all the circulating sickle cells usually loses its function in african disease in the first year of life 
What happens in India? It looks as though at the age of one, two, three, four, they still have splenic function normally. Five, they begin to show problems. So there is a difference in the ability of the spleen. Now, what's the importance of that? Well, pneumococcal septicemia, which is one of the most important infections in the disease, causing brain damage, causing death, falls sharply after the age of three. So if your splenic function persists beyond the age of three, you're not going to get pneumococcal septicemia. If you go to India, and I've now been 27 times to India, I talk all the time all over India, and I work with pediatricians and I say, have you ever seen a child with pneumococcal septicemia? No, never. Is there a case in the literature in India? No, never. So here again, you're beginning to see they've got less leg ulcers, they've got less priapism or no priapism. They are now, it looks as though their splenic function protects them against pneumococcal septicemia. Now, what is particularly tragic is, of course, well-meaning Indian doctors, of whom I know many working in sickle cell disease, are using models of care developed in African patients. And so they are actually giving pneumococcal prophylaxis, which is expensive vaccines, injections of penicillin, and you say, but why are you doing this? Oh, because of pneumococcal septicemia. I say, have you ever seen a case? No. But they do in Africa. Well, that's a different issue. Right. So once again, you are beginning to see the difference. And you see, one of the things I'm trying to do now is to actually persuade Indian doctors that pneumococcal prophylaxis is not necessary. It costs about 220 U. US dollars per child, that money should be much better used in more relevant things. So we're beginning to see that there are very important differences geographically in the disease. And you say, well, so what? Why? And one of the principal reasons is that the genetic factors that you began to talk about, for some reason, fetal hemoglobin persists for much longer in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia and in central India. So they've got some genetic factor that allows them to retain high levels of fetal hemoglobin that inhibits sickling so that they actually are protected from, well, we've already seen three examples of differences in the disease. Today's episode of Cheat Codes is brought to you by Novartis, manufacturers of Adacvio and the Adacvio Warrior Way program. Hey, warriors fighting sickle cell disease, you know how unpredictable and uncomfortable sickle cell pain crises can be. That's why it's so important to explore your options. One of those options is Adacvio. What exactly is Adacvio? Adacvio is a treatment for people 16 years or older with sickle cell disease that could reduce how often certain pain crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. And the Adacvio Warrior Way program can provide you with support, including tips, tools, and resources to help you understand Adacvio. Reducing the frequency of pain crises may be possible with Adacvio. 
Talk to your doctor to see if treatment with Adacvio is right for you and visit adacvio.com to learn more. That's A-D-A-K-V-E-O.com. Visit adacvio.com today. Important safety information. What is Adacvio? Adacvio is a prescription medicine used in people 16 years of age and older who have sickle cell disease to help reduce how often painful crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. What should I tell my doctor or healthcare provider before taking Adacvio? Before receiving Adacvio, tell your healthcare provider about all of your medical conditions, including if you are pregnant or plan to become pregnant, Adacvio may harm your unborn baby, are breastfeeding or plan to breastfeed, it is not known if Adacvio passes into breast milk. You and your healthcare provider should decide the best way to feed your baby during treatment with Adacvio. Tell your healthcare provider about all of the medicines you take, including prescription and over-the-counter medicines, vitamins, and herbal supplements. How will I receive Adacvio? Your healthcare provider will give you Adacvio as an infusion into your vein through an intravenous or IV line over 30 minutes. You will receive your first infusion and then a second infusion two weeks later. After that, you will receive an infusion every four weeks. Your healthcare provider may also prescribe other treatments for you to take during treatment with Adacvio. Do not stop receiving Adacvio unless your healthcare provider tells you to. If you miss an appointment for an infusion, call your healthcare provider as soon as possible to reschedule. What are some of the possible side effects of Adacvio? Adacvio may cause serious side effects, including infusion related reactions. Infusion related reactions may happen during or within 24 hours of receiving an infusion of Adacvio. Your healthcare provider may slow down, temporarily stop, or completely stop your infusion with Adacvio if you are having an infusion-related reaction. You may continue to receive Adacvio at a slower infusion rate, and your healthcare provider may give you certain medicines before your infusion to lower your risk of getting an infusion-related reaction. Your healthcare provider should monitor you for signs and symptoms of infusion-related reactions and treat your symptoms as needed. Tell your healthcare provider right away if you get any of the following signs and symptoms of an infusion-related reaction. Pain in various locations, headache, fever, chills or shivering, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tiredness, dizziness, sweating, hives, itching, shortness of breath, or wheezing. Adacvio may interfere with a blood test. Tell your healthcare provider if you are receiving Adacvio before having any blood test. Adacvio may interfere with a laboratory test to measure your platelet counts. The most common side effects of Adacvio include nausea, stomach area or abdominal pain or tenderness, joint pain, back pain, fever. These are not all of the possible side effects of Adacvio. For more information, ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist. Call your doctor for medical advice about side effects. You are encouraged to report negative side effects of prescription drugs to the Food and Drug Administration. Visit fda.gov medwatch or call 1-800-FDA-1088. General information about the safe and effective use of Adacvio. Medicines are sometimes prescribed for purposes other than those listed in a patient information leaflet. You can ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist for more information about Adacvio. Thank you to Novartis, manufacturers of Adacvio, Visit adacvio.com for more information. That's A-D-A-K-V-E-O.com.
Wow. I have to ask, what first got you so interested in sickle cell? I know I'm going back a bit here, but what what, what were the what was the original hook that pulled you into the world of sickle cell disease? Well, I think that discrepancy between what we were seeing in Jamaica and what the textbooks told us of what it should be. And yeah. clearly, either the Jamaican disease is different or the textbooks were wrong. And I think everybody now agrees that the textbooks were wrong. You know, uh, Nixon passed the Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act at Congress in May 1972. And that had a tremendous impact in increasing awareness and facilities for widespread screening. And the military started to screen recruits to the Marines. Four of those recruits had SS disease. So, you know, you're beginning to see that really there has been a huge symptomatic bias built into so much of the published information on the disease. So medicines are being developed. We had a couple here in the United States become available in the last couple of years after a long period where there was nothing being developed or or being made available, I should say. Uh, But predictable, sustainable access to medication remains a challenge globally. I'm curious, given where the science is today and given where different health infrastructures are or are not today, what is your general outlook on the diagnosis and management of sickle cell disease in 2021? And I appreciate that that's kind of a big and broad question, but I'm curious to know what that what that sparks in you. I think some of the interventions that you're probably talking about, hydroxyurea is obviously one of those interventions. I officially retired from clinical service in Jamaica in 1999. The Sam Shiraj's paper on showing that hydroxyurea did have a significant effect in reducing the incidence of acute chest and bone pain crisis was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1995. The point I'm making is that I've had very little practical experience in the use of hydroxyurea. Many excellent doctors have a lot of experience and it looks as though it does help a lot of patients. Some don't respond. Um, Hydroxyurea, you have to use quite large doses in African disease. It's used in India, but much lower doses seem to... I mean, we're talking about 35 milligrams per kg in African patients, and in India, 10 milligrams per kg appears to have a clinical effect. That wouldn't have any effect in African patients. Now... What you're talking about is a fairly toxic dose. And that means that people have to have regular blood tests to monitor their hematology to see what effect hydroxyurea is having on their hematology. And what I begin to feel here is there, there is a danger in making people hospital dependent, to tying them in to the medical services. There's no doubt, you know, I've got many colleagues in the US for whom I have great respect who say the life of sickle cell patients has been changed in their experience by the use of hydroxyurea. In Jamaica, hydroxyurea is little used. The question is whether there are other approaches to to the problem. Um, The three standard criteria for the use of hydroxyurea are the acute chest syndrome, the painful crisis, uh, and transfusion. Well, blood transfusion is not in the minds of the patient, it's in the minds of the doctors. And the doctors 
people who decide whether or not a patient should be transfused. And I think there's an important message here, and that is in my experience, and I believe this is true, that that transfusion is overused in, in many situations. I think, you know, I, I probably get into trouble by saying this, but doctors like to cure things. And when faced with a genetic condition which they can't cure, there is a tendency, perhaps, to treat too much rather than too little. And I think what we've done in Jamaica is we've tried to evolve models of care which are locally appropriate and try to actually uh, empower the patient and their family. And of course, this is not just a patient disease, this is a family disease because it affects siblings, it affects parents, you know, all the effort being focused into the affected child. So, you know, you, you have to deal with the whole family. And we're trying to empower people to cope uh, with the situation and to see if we can develop models that are not hospital dependent. Now, as a result, we transfuse relatively little. Um, let me give you another example. One of the, the most common problems and one of the common causes of death in early childhood was acute splenic sequestration, where the spleen sitting under the ribs on the left side of the belly suddenly enlarges, traps the baby's blood, and the baby goes quiet, pale, and can die if the diagnosis is not made quickly. That child needs transfusion in the short term. So what we did was we argued that you don't need the best spleen feelers in the clinic, you need them at home. And so we started to train our mothers how to feel the spleen. And we looked at the five, we said, every day when you're bathing your child, feel under the ribs, see if you can feel the spleen, this is where it is, this is what it feels like. We can always show a, a, an example in the clinic. And we looked at the five years before that education program and the five years after. And the first thing that we found was that the apparent incidence of this complication had more than doubled. These were events wow. detected by the mother at home, brought the clinic to the, brought the child to the clinic immediately, and it was confirmed by the doctor. So the first message is you can actually teach your mothers to diagnose acute splenic sequestration. What happened to the death rate? Fell by 90%. Wow. Nine zero. Just by teaching a mother this intervention. So not only is she saving her child, she's also realizing that to some extent, the outcome of the disease in her child is dependent on her, her awareness yeah. and her care. And that's a very important message, physically and psychologically. So that's just, that's just one example. Let's go back now to hydroxyurea and begin to talk about some of the other issues. The acute chest syndrome is like a pneumonia. Uh, but it's a multifactorial thing. It's very complicated. It's the biggest single cause of death after the age of two years. Uh, even with excellent interventions, there are still people dying with the acute chest syndrome. So we've made relatively little progress in that. But let's talk about the bone pain crisis. These are attacks of bone pain, usually close to the joints. The patient often says they have joint pains. It's not joint pains. It's actually involvement of the bone marrow medulla close to the joints in the long bones, in the spine, 
in the ribs and in the uh, sternum. Now, why do people get the painful crisis? It's not just because they have sickle cell disease. They have sickle cell disease all the time. Only certain times do they get painful crises. Right. So you begin to ask them why. What did you do in the 24 hours before the pain started? I got caught in the rain. I took a cold shower. I took a cold bath. I was doing laundry in cold water. I got caught in the rain. What's telling you? is that getting cold or wet causes bone pains. Right. So you can actually avoid a lot of bone pains by just avoiding those situations. And we always ask our patients what they think causes their pains. And then after we've asked them these open questions, we say, fine, do you ever go to the beach? No, don't go to the beach. Why don't you go to the beach? Because every time I go to the beach, I get pains. So they know. So we say, well, listen, go to the beach, go in the water, don't stay in too long. When you come out, dry off immediately, change your wet clothes. Simple modifications in lifestyle can actually prevent many painful crises. I can recall doing a clinic in Montego Bay at the Cornwall Regional Hospital. Montego Bay has substantial hills behind and patients would come in and they say, Doc, dreadful disease. Every morning I get up, I have a cold bath and I get pains. So I say, fine, if you enjoy pains, you carry on. But if you want to stop pains, then try warming the water or wait until the middle of the day when the sun is hot and you can dry off quickly. You know, simple modifications in lifestyle. So there are ways of coping with this disease that we think work, and I think most of our patients agree that that they can work. There are obviously some people who have severe, frequent, painful crises, and those are extremely difficult to manage. Uh, But these are a small, hardcore group out of the... We used to look after 5,500 patients with sickle cell disease at the sickle cell unit at the at the University of the West Indies. Wow. Well, I am, I'm so thankful for your time. And, and this hearing you recount all of this is quite, uh, I mean, you've given me chills a few times. So whatever that says. But the final question I want to ask you is a, a bit more personal. You've mentioned a couple of times your wife, Beryl, who's a medical technologist and who, as you spoke about, has developed low-cost methods of diagnosis. She's co-authored some important books along with you. And I'm curious to know what's it been like to have your wife working alongside you for these seminal works for so much of your career to really have her in partnership, not just personally, but professionally. What has that been like? Sorry, I don't understand your question. Are you saying it's good to have a wife who works or it's bad? (laughs) I think I'm saying it's good. uh, to, To restate and simplify... Has it felt at times uniquely special that you have a partner? I mean, you mentioned 27 trips to India. You relocated from Bristol to Jamaica. You've done some extraordinary work, and you've lived a life that's a bit atypical of your average human being. You have a wife who seems to be right alongside you on that journey, both personally and professionally. And I just wonder if you have any reflections on that. Sure. No, no, not really. I mean, it worked. I think one of the successes of the sickle cell unit at the university, from which I retired in 99, late 99, uh, was that I looked after the clinical side of the the unit and she looked after the laboratory side of the unit. 
And it was a happy unit, I think. People uh, enjoyed working there. They had a sense of fulfillment. Uh, we, we had uh, a very good sort of, within the unit, you know, everybody, uh, we, we didn't have any problems. We had 28 staff in the end. And it was very interesting because we had a lot of visitors. And the vice chancellor would come by and he said, you know, I like to bring them to the sickle cell unit because it's such a happy unit. And then you suddenly realize, what a strange thing to say at the time, but you realize that not, not all research units are happy and not all departments are happy. And I think we were, we were privileged because we were all working for the same end. Uh, and we had an excellent group of patients who enjoyed interacting with us and we enjoyed interacting with them. And it's them, who, of course, who've taught us all we know about sickle cell disease. Uh, well, Graham Sargent, you've had such an extraordinary career. The Jamaican cohort study, as you mentioned, the, uh, the eldest person tracked now being 48 years old, just remarkable, be 100% follow-up, what that's contributed to the medicine and, and database of sickle cell disease globally and how that will inform other clinicians and scientists' work for years and years to come the impact on patients around the world. It's astonishing. I'm impressed. I'm, I feel honored to be speaking with you today. And I thank you for coming on Cheat Codes. I'd love to speak with you again down the road. There's so much to discuss, but thank you for the time you've given us today. Really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. And as I say, I enjoy talking about sickle cell disease. So whenever you have any more questions, just set up another meeting. Sickle Cell Warriors, I hope that you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Dr. C, what an unbelievable individual Dr. Graham Sargent is. Now, that is such a treat to be able to hear, you know, truly a legend in the field who's done, as you heard, so much work and, and really had such a profound impact. I'm really happy that he was able to come on Cheat Codes and our listeners were able to get a chance to hear from him. If Cheat Codes at the end of all of this is nothing but a time capsule of sickle cell disease in 2020 and 2021, this, this is something that, that really needed to be in that time capsule. For sure. And 2022 and 2023, Dr. Z. <laughs> I like your optimism. All right, sickle cell warriors, on that note of optimism, glass half full, we are going to pray that you continue to live well with sickle cell. We hope that you share this podcast with somebody who you think could learn about sickle cell disease or needs to hear about sickle cell disease. And as always, you can follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at Imagineer. We'll see you next time. Peace.